I just want to share with you this morning, we're going to go back to the book of James, and we're going to be in chapter 5, but kind of as an introduction to that, I just want to share with you that in my secular workplace, maybe I'm sure all of you already know that I have a job during the week that I work, and then it's my pleasure on the weekend to be able to come and share the Word of God and minister with you here at the church body of Root River Church. But in my secular workplace throughout the week, sometimes one of my responsibilities, one of the things that I get to do is I have the responsibility of working on contracts with uh, prospective customers. And over the last several weeks, I've been working on contracts or what we call supply agreements with a few of my customers. And so I've been calling and emailing back and forth with several of them to discuss some of the points of our contract. For example, I want my customer to pay me in 30 days. If I can get him to pay me faster than that, even better. But I want my my customer to pay me in 30 days. And of course, he wants to do what? He wants to pay in 60, 90, 120, whatever he can get away with. And so, you know, my goal is to get him to pay in, in 30 days. But we have to work that out. That's something that we have to get together on. Or maybe my customer wants me to lock in pricing so that it's not going to fluctuate for the next three years, regardless of market conditions. I mean, that's a great win for him if I'm willing to do that. Because on the other hand, what I want to do is I want to tie all of our pricing to the material market and allow that to drive all the pricing deviations for the next three years so that if I see a significant cost increase, I don't have to absorb those and pay for those out of my profits. I can pass those along to my customer. Or maybe my customer wants me to provide a certain technology or a a certain service to help his business operate more efficiently. Maybe he wants me to invest my cash and certain assets to help minimize his cash expense, whatever it is. And then in return, I might ask him to spend X amount of dollars. I might ask that he would spend this many dollars over the next three years. Or maybe I just want to charge a little bit more. Whatever it takes to justify the investment. But recently I had an interesting conversation. I had a customer, and this happens commonly, who detailed at length the service, the technological and cash assets that he wanted me to pour into his facility. And I said, okay, I think I may be willing to do that, but in return, I'm going to need you to spend X number of dollars per month for the next three years. And the guy thought about it, and he said, you know, that sounds good. It's, it's not a problem. We spend way more money than that every month anyway. No problem. Let's go ahead and get started. I said, great. I'll draw up the supply agreement and I'll get it across to you for your signature, and I'll be happy to just jump on things. As soon as you get the agreement back to me, we'll, we'll get started. I'll get everything in place. And his response to me was not uncommon, but I think because of the passage we're studying today in James chapter 5, it really jumped out at me this time. This is what the guy said. He said, I'm not willing to sign an agreement. I told you I'm going to do it. Why do you need a contract? It made me pause. I had to, I had to think about it. I was like, well, that's a good question. Why do I need a contract? And then, of course, you know, I... As a good manager, I, or hoping to be a good manager, I began to run all of those, all of those questions through my mind, and I considered all of the reasons that I would need a contract with this guy. I considered my investment of staffing resources. I considered all of the inventory assets that I would have to lay in to service this account. I thought of the technology and the cost of developing those technologies. I thought of the cash. On and on I went. And after I just said this to myself and made this mental list, I made a statement to myself, and I often do this. I'm sure that you guys do this too. That really stunned me. You know, I, man, that was a smart statement. I wish somebody else had heard me say that. So I made this statement to myself that I was really proud of. And this is what I said. If you don't do what you say you're going to do, I'm going to lose a lot of money. And I'm going to have absolutely no recourse. So what was the bottom line in my needing a contract? Think about it for a minute. What was my bottom line? Was it because I needed the money? No. 
It wasn't that. It was to protect myself and to protect my interests just in case you don't do what you say you're going to do. That's what it is. You see, then I have a legal right to demand compensation. Then I have a legal basis to demand payment from you. So I'd like to just ask all of you this question if I can. Don't you think that it's prudent of me to guard my employer's interests by having a legal means to gain compensation if a customer doesn't come through with his promises? Don't you think that's prudent? It makes sense, doesn't it? How many of you have ever gone to the bank and asked for money to buy a new house? How many of you have ever gone to the bank and asked for a car loan? But when you go to buy a new house, I want you to remember that. Go back in your mind to what it was like to be in that room at the bank. What is it that they want you to do? They want you to sign, if you were anything like me, maybe maybe your credit is better than mine, but they wanted me to sign like 75 pages, it seemed like, of promises that I was going to pay them back with interest. You see, if you don't, then there was another piece of paper that I signed that said the banker could have my house. He was covering himself. I mean, would any banker lend me a couple hundred thousand dollars to buy a house if I said, you know, I really don't want to sign a contract. I told you that I'll pay you back and that should be good enough. Would any banker worth his salt give me a couple hundred thousand dollars for that? Why not? Why wouldn't he do that? For the same reason that I wanted a contract from my customer. The banker wants some legal means to gain compensation if I don't come through on my promises. Do you see? So what's the bottom line? Why do I need a contract? It's because to get what people want, they will make promises and then not do what they have promised. They will promise to do this, that, or the other to get from you what they want, and then after they've gotten what they want, they don't follow through. Why would people do that? Can I help you understand that? It's because people are liars, And it starts really, really early in their lives. Did you know that it's at about the age of three that children begin to develop the mental capacity to tell a lie? They begin to develop the mental capacity to understand that they might gain something from misleading their parents. They might gain something from telling a lie. And from that point forward, I want you to know that they never really look back. I mentioned to you before that by the time they're teenagers, they are lying 50% more than any other demographic. In fact, it is a fact that parents are lied to. 86% of all parents are lied to every single day. Do you know who the other 14% are? They're the ones whose kids are already out of the house and they don't talk to them every day. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) But the truth is, friends, we never grow out of it. Say what you want, we never grow out of it because lying toddlers become lying teenagers. Now listen closely, lying teenagers eventually become lying parents. Lying parents ultimately become lying grandparents. So it seems that everyone lies. Parents lie. Salespeople lie. Lawyers lie. Teachers lie to their students. Students lie to their teachers. Would you believe that even politicians lie to win elections? (laughs) Seems like you can't trust anybody, doesn't it? Everyone is lying to everyone else. And you know what? Promises really don't mean much. I always get a kick out of this. I hear someone say something like, do you remember when a man's word was his bond? Remember that? (laughs) So they finally, they're, they're recalling the days when a man said something and he did exactly what he promised. And I think that's absolutely great. But can I tell you something? I don't think it really ever happened. 
Sure, there have been some virtuous people throughout the pages of history. There have been some people who are honest and forthright in their dealings. And you know what they are? They're called Christians. I want you to think about this for a minute. The Bible teaches that is not the predisposition of the heart of man. It does not teach that truthfulness is the predisposition of the heart of man. What does the prophet Jeremiah say about the condition of the heart? In Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, The heart is what? Deceitful above all things, and is beyond cure. At its core, at its root, the heart of unregenerate man is filled with lying, and it's filled with deceit. So in order to hold man accountable to to do what he says, we have to have contracts. We have to have supply agreements. We have to have mortgages. And then we also use non-written contracts. You know what those are called? Oaths, right? You You know what an oath is? An oath really is just an attempt to force dishonest people to be truthful or to do what they promise without writing it down on a piece of paper. Isn't that basically what a marriage vow is? And how successful is that? Well, at this point... Nearly 50% of all marriages end in divorce, so you tell me. But I want you to know that's not how God would have it. That's not God's best design. Friends, when we make vows, when we swear an oath, when we enter into a contract, God would expect us to be people of our word. Do you know that? God expects that we would be people of our word. And to illustrate that, I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament book of Numbers. I want you to take a look at Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, and this is what it says. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or if he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, listen closely, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Friends, I believe that God would have us to be people who say what we mean and mean what we say, don't you? As you can see from that passage in Numbers chapter 30, the custom of swearing oaths was a very important part of Jewish society. I mean, imagine this with me. Can you imagine the damage that a dishonest person could have done in the ancient Jewish culture? Think about this for a minute. They didn't have all the written agreements. They didn't have all the contracts that govern every aspect of our day-to-day lives. They didn't have all of those things. They didn't have law offices on every single street corner. Imagine for a moment a dishonest person of ancient days who was approached by a neighbor and the neighbor maybe came to him and said, hey, I'm going away for a time and I'm going to, I'm going to ask that you would be willing to take care of everything that I own. I'm going to entrust you everything that I've got. And I want you to imagine now the dishonest person saying, I swear to God, I swear to you by God that I will care for your livestock, I will care for your grain, and I will care for your servants as if they were mine. And so the neighbor then turns everything over to him because he says, this is my oath to you. This is my pledge to you. And the neighbor turns absolutely everything over to his care and he leaves. Well, if he were a dishonest man, the man who made the pledge could take absolutely everything from that neighbor. He could sell it. He could pocket the cash and he could walk off into the sunset, couldn't he? Can you imagine the damage that that would have done? Can you imagine what would happen? What would that have done to people in those days who didn't have attorneys to fall back on at every turn? Listen, it's important for us to remember that not only in our study of James, but also going back to our time in Ephesians, we have learned that the life patterns of believers are to be distinct and they are to be different from those of the people of this world. Did you hear that? The lifestyles and the patterns of believers are to be distinct and they are to be different from those of the people of this world. 
And one distinction that should be most clear is the way that we control our tongues and the way that we speak. I'd like to take you to our passage for today, if you would go with me now to James chapter 5 and verse 12, and we're going to just take a look at the very first part of the verse, and this is what it says. But above all, my brothers, but above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. And we're just going to stop right there. So just as a point of clarification here, when James says do not swear, he's not speaking of the colorful four-lettered words of profanity and vulgarity that you're thinking of as swearing on a typical on a typical day. But I do want you to know that he doesn't want you to do that either, okay? So if you hear me say that that's not what he intends here, I still want you to know that he doesn't want you going around swearing either. But he's speaking specifically of oaths here. So one thing that I always find rather interesting, have you ever noticed all the vows and all the oaths that end with the four words, so help me God. Have you ever noticed that? Even in the political realm, even in the secular world, many of the oaths of office, the oaths of military and civil service, even the oaths of naturalization, and almost every other oath ends with the words, so help me God. So I think it's important for us to understand the significance and the solemnity of using those words, so help me God. So in ancient Greek culture, The oath would typically consist of three components, and I want to introduce those to you quickly so that I can help you to understand. First, there was what they called, or what was known as the declaration, okay? So maybe the person swearing the oath would swear that he would accurately recount events that he had witnessed in the past, much like we do when we raise our hand in the court of law. That was a declaration, and that's what we're doing even today. We're declaring that we're going to tell the truth about what we have seen. Or maybe the person taking the oath would swear that he would do something in the future. That was another possibility. That's exactly what we do when we swear an oath to to love in sickness and in health and richer and poorer until death do we part. We're swearing an oath that in the future we're going to do these things. Or maybe he would swear that he was going to protect someone. Maybe he would swear that he was going to provide for someone, much like we do when we adopt a child. That's what we're doing, isn't it? But whatever the case, the person who was swearing the oath would make his declaration of the purpose of the oath, the purpose for fulfilling the oath. Now, the next thing that would happen is that the person swearing the oath would swear by some superhuman power or deity. And we're not talking about Superman or Batman. We're talking about a god. He would Maybe he would swear by Zeus, the ruler of all the gods. Or maybe he would swear by Helios, the, the god of the sun, or Gaia, the goddess of the earth. He could swear by, in fact, some people who really wanted to make it seem binding would swear by the pantheon, the entire pantheon of all of the Greek gods. But whatever the case, when he did this, this is the God, this is the power that he is saying is responsible to witness my oath, responsible to witness my declaration and the fulfillment of my oath. I want you to hang on to that. The next thing that he would do in step three is that the swearer would call down on himself a conditional curse. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? He would call down on himself a conditional curse. So what he's saying is that if I should fail to meet the conditions of this oath, the God that I just named as the witness to the oath will be responsible to invoke upon me the one who is swearing the curse that I'm swearing by. Do you understand? For example... If someone were to say, I swear to God on my children's lives that I will pay you back in three months. Kids, you better get jobs (laughs) right away. (laughs) 
If you were to swear to God on my children's lives that I will pay you back in three months, and that person did not pay back what he had borrowed in three months, he could expect that God would allow, listen closely, God would allow his children to be killed without holding the creditor accountable for the murder. Do you see? He swore this oath by God and God witnessed it and God said, okay, if that's the way you want it, then if you don't pay your oath back, these children will be killed and you are not, and, and the creditor is not responsible for their debt. You are. Do you see that? Now let me just ask you, have you ever heard anyone say to you, I swear to God? Have you heard that? I swear to God. Maybe they're recounting certain events and they're telling you a funny story and so and so did this and so and so did that. I swear to God, that's the way it happened. Or maybe you have a friend who wants a favor from you and they tell you, hey, I'll pay you back. I swear to God, I'll pay you back. I want you to consider that. You see, the problem is that people say that without considering what they're doing. They say these things and they probably don't intend anything by it. They're just flippantly swearing and throwing these words out there and they're doing it without giving it any thought at all. And I want you to know that that practice had made its way into the church in the time of James. And that's what we're dealing with. And James says, don't do that. Don't ever do that. James is not saying that we should never take a vow. He's not saying that we should never make an oath. He's not saying that we should never sign a contract. He's not saying that we should never sign a supply agreement. In a world that is filled with liars, it's sometimes necessary for us to do that. But what he's saying is, we don't go around indiscriminately swearing and pledging oaths without stopping to consider the gravity of what we're doing. We don't just go around swearing these oaths to commit ourselves to things without considering the gravity of what we're saying. He says, may omnuita, present active imperative, do not be swearing oaths. As a practice of life, don't go around as a pattern of life swearing this and swearing to that. I swear to God this, I swear to God that. He's saying, don't go around doing that. Consider what you're doing. Don't go around making promises and pledges that you can't keep or have no desire to keep. Don't go around saying that you're going to do something that you have no intention of doing. That's what the pagans do. That's what James is saying. He's saying that's what people who don't believe do. That's what the children of the devil do. They're the children of the father of lies. They're liars. But you, as the church, are to be distinct in your behavior. You are to be different. You are to be deliberate in your commitments. You know, for some reason, even as a child, I I did have a sense that I should do what I said I was going to do. Kids, listen to this. This is really important for you. If you have brothers and sisters, (laughs) I want you to know that I can relate to you because I have them too. And as a kid, I didn't always want to do what I said I was going to do. Can I give you an example? And I know, kids, that you're doing this, all right, just so that you know. I know that you're doing this. You see, I wanted the benefit of the oath without the risk of the commitment. Did you hear that? I wanted the benefit of the oath without the risk of the commitment. Very much like my customer from a little bit earlier. I want the benefit of all the great things, but I don't want to take the risk of committing to you. Now listen. So to work that out, I learned to get very creative. You want to know what it sounded like? I had a little brother whose name is Jeff. And I said, hey, Jeff. (laughs) Kids, listen, I know that you're doing this, all right? Hey, Jeff. (laughs) <laughs> if you go get me a glass of iced tea, I promise you, man, when you come back, I'll give you the TV remote, right? See, the idea was for me to say whatever it takes to get my little brother to go do what I want him to do. And so I promised the remote, and my little brother, of course, trusting that I was a big brother of my word, what did he do? 
He goes running off. He goes downstairs. He gets in the fridge. He, you know, he gets my glass of tea. He does exactly, he does exactly what he said he would do because he thought I was going to do what I said I was going to do. Big mistake, right? You know why? Because I was creative. And he came back upstairs. I'm like, sorry, dude. I had my fingers crossed the whole time. (laughs) Sure, I thought about it. That's really, you know, I thought I was clever, but it's really not all that innovative. Did you know that? You see, the rabbis of ancient Jewish times taught that vows that were made with God being the witness were the only ones that you actually had to keep. Think about that for a minute. Only the vows that I make that invoke the God Almighty of the universe, the holy God of of Jewish tradition, are the ones that I have to keep. And so then what they would do is they would decide that vows like swearing to the sun or swearing by heaven or swearing by the earth. I swear by the earth. I'm going to give you the remote if you go give me that glass of tea. You're a real chump if you fall for that one, kids. I want you to know that. But that's what they would do. They would swear by anything that they could, anything other than God. Well, you swore that if I got you a glass of iced tea, you'd give me the remote. Sorry, dude. I didn't swear to God. I swore by heaven. I didn't swear to God. I swore by my mother's eyes. I don't have to give you the remote. That wasn't binding. That one didn't count. I had my fingers crossed, right? And James says this, above all my brothers in verse 12, don't swear either by heaven or by the earth or any other oath. Why do you think he said that? Because people were using that as an end around. They knew that they could swear by this, they could swear by that, they could swear by anything else. And he's saying swearing like that is deliberately evasive. You're deliberately being deceitful. It's an attempt to hide a lying heart. And James says, don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by the earth. Don't swear by your mother's eyes. Don't swear by anything else. The problem is, even though you are doing your best to be deceitful, even though you are doing your best to be manipulative, what you don't understand is that God is witness whether or not you invoke his name. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you intend. It doesn't matter what clever out you've created for yourselves. When you commit to something, God witnesses it, God hears it, and God sees it as binding. Just say it the way it is. That's the message here. That's what he's after. So take a look at the second part of verse 12. It says this, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Friends, as Christians, our speech is to be honest. Why is that? Well, in Matthew 12, Jesus told the Pharisees that the mouth speaks out of the abundance of what? The fullness of your heart. Because what's going on is that your mouth is speaking what is in your heart. And so a mouth that speaks deceitfully betrays a duplicitous heart. A mouth that speaks deceitfully betrays a heart that is filled with lies. A Christian speech should be honest. A Christian speech should be straightforward because it speaks from a heart that's been transformed, doesn't it? The believer's heart is no longer deceitful. It's no longer deceitful above all things, is it? It's been transformed. And when a believer speaks, he speaks from a heart that is pure. He speaks from a heart that is honest. Christians are to be people of integrity. And may I suggest to you that people of integrity don't need to dream up elaborate oaths. They don't need to dream up elaborate contracts so that they can deceive people into believing things that aren't true. They don't have to try to deceive people to hide their intent. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. They should be people who do what they say they're going to do. 
I want you to know that believers should have the reputation of honest and genuine people of true integrity. Can I just tell you that for us, there should be no reason to swear to God that I'm telling the truth? If you're a believer, do you really need to swear to God? Can't you just say it and have people believe that it's true because you've already developed that pattern in your lives? You've already earned that reputation as someone who tells the truth? You don't need to swear to God. I should just speak the truth and let the facts bear witness to the purity of my heart. And though that's true, I want you to know that you still can't expect to go to the banker and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I won't be signing the 75 pages of stuff for my home loan. Listen, when you purchase a home, it's okay, go ahead and sign the paperwork. When you get married, it's fine to speak the vows and to publicly lock yourself in. But as a matter of daily living, as a matter of daily conduct, friends, listen to me, you don't need to be going around swearing this and swearing that to be credible. You should just be credible by virtue of your of the content of your character. Simply say yes and mean yes. Simply say no and mean no. And that's what James is after in verse 12 here. You're different from the rest of the world. Yours is not the father of lies. Yours is the father of light. Yours is the father of truth. Can you imagine what would happen if every single person in this room were able to speak the simple truth on every occasion? Can you imagine how distinct that would make this church look from the rest of the world? This world system is a system of lies. It's a system of deceit. But that's not the system of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine with me for a minute a church in which everyone simply spoke their word and followed through on their commitments. I wonder how different Root River Church would look if everyone who ever spoke the words, I'll be praying for you, actually prayed. I wonder how different... Root River Church would look if all the people who said, I'll be seeking God's direction for our church through fasting and prayer actually followed through with fasting and prayer. What if everyone who said that they'd be willing to minister in a particular area actually followed through with committed service? See, that's what makes the church different. And that's why, just on a personal note, I don't really care for commitment cards and forms like that in the church. Real believers don't need them, do they? I said I would serve the next week. I'll be there. I said I'm going to help out in this area. You don't have to call me. I'm going to be there. I said I'd give to a particular fund. I said I would give to a particular ministry. You don't have to call me to see if I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I told you I'd do it. I don't need to fill out a colorful commitment card and walk down an aisle and drop it in a decorated box. The world says, till death do us part. But 50% of them say it with their fingers crossed. But unfortunately, the world somehow finds its way into the church, doesn't it? People say, I'm here to serve, but they say it with their fingers crossed. And so they sign up for this ministry or that ministry, and they don't really plug in, they don't really stay engaged, their fingers are crossed. And James says that's how the world does things. We just do what we say we're going to do. When we commit, we do it. So friends, listen, if you commit yourself to a ministry, if you commit yourself to give to a particular fund or to a particular ministry, If you commit yourself to serve, if you commit yourself to fast and pray, you do it, even when it doesn't feel good, even when it's a sacrifice. You do it even when it becomes difficult. And can I tell you that that's what makes it so sweet. That's what makes it so valuable. We should be people who allow yes to mean yes and no to mean no. And I want to show you why now. Let's go back to verse 12. The last part of verse 12, this is what it says so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
so that you may not fall under condemnation. James wants us to know that there are consequences for falsely swearing an oath or for falsely making commitments with your fingers crossed. There are consequences for telling your little brother you're going to give him the remote and then not giving it to him. And the consequences, according to James, are that you fall under condemnation. The Greek word is krisis. And when you see it used in the New Testament, it's used to describe the judgment that awaits unbelievers. I want you to get this, okay? This is very important. Krisis is the condemnation that we fall under when we are being judged. It's used to describe judgment that awaits unbelievers. Why is that important? Because it usually refers to eternal condemnation. So those people who go around making oaths and not following through are those people who face eternal condemnation. This is important. We remember that James is a series of tests, don't we? We remember that it's a series of tests to help us determine the genuineness of our faith. Verse 12 is no different. I want you to answer a question for me. Who are those those people who face the judgment of eternal condemnation? Who faces that? Is it believers? It's not believers, is it? Who is it? It's unbelievers. And James is saying that those people whose daily pattern of life it is to make false promises and to not follow through on commitments are people who are going to face eternal judgment. What does that tell you about those people? It tells you they're not believers, doesn't it? James is saying if that is the pattern of your life, then you must be very, very careful to examine yourself and to determine if you truly are saved. Are, your, are you sure that your faith is genuine? That's what he's saying here. Listen, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. From time to time, I make commitments and I don't follow through on them more often than I would like to admit. And I want you to know that believers are going to make the mistake of falling into falsehood on occasion. It's just true. But genuine believers do not make a pattern of lying, of deceit, and of failure to follow through. Did you catch that? I just want to ask you to look at your life. If your life is characterized by a pattern of lying, if your life is characterized by a pattern of swearing to convince people that you're telling the truth, James is saying you're giving evidence of a heart that is not saved. And if that's you, you're going to hell. That's what that means. And so we examine ourselves closely. We look closely. That's the intent here. James has been telling us this from the very beginning of his book. And today he's telling us that if you look at your life and and your life is a pattern of constantly using the name of God to cover up your lies or swearing an oath to cover up your lies, it's probably because you aren't saved. And that's the real problem. Now listen, I want to be very clear. We're not saying that we never say anything that isn't true because it happens. We're not saying that we have never made any commitment that we haven't completely followed through on. But it is not the pattern of our lives. It is the exception It's not the rule. Father, I thank You so much for Your grace and for Your mercy. And I pray, God, that You would help the people here at Root River Church to speak only the truth. May there never be any question about our integrity. I pray, God, that You would make our yes be yes and our no be no. And I pray, God, that everything that we say would reflect a heart that's been transformed by the power of Your Holy Spirit pray, God, that you would fill our mouths only with your words. I pray, God, that we would speak only as Christ spoke with complete honesty. I pray, Lord, that we would not be a people who goes around swearing oaths and swearing this and that to cover up the deceit that's in our hearts. 
And God, I pray for those people who are here this morning that might be struggling with deceit and with lying. And I pray, God, for those people who are here this morning who knows that the character and the content and the patterns of their lives indicate that their lives aren't really regenerate. I pray, God, that you would empower them that this would be the day that they would repent and come to right standing before you. And I pray, God, that you would mold all of us more perfectly into the image of Jesus Christ, that we could speak only as he spoke. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.